What's this? What's this? It's super califragilistic, expialidocious. What is this? A whole new world. What is this? Welcome to the Circle of Film podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into Steven Spielberg's entire filmography on today's retro review episode. And just as a warning up front, I I don't write any of my podcast episodes out. None of them are scripted. It's all off the cuff. I go in with an idea of what's, go- what's going to be talked about and wing it. And you would think that a episode with it as roughly as much structure as this one has, that I would adequately prepare for that, but I haven't. Uh, Today's episode is simply going to be me going through all of Spielberg's filmography. I will admit that I haven't seen every single movie that he has directed, and I will address those at the end after I've gone through all the ones I've seen, but I've seen... I've seen 28 of his films that he's directed, and I would currently give him a total of 35 total films that he's directed, which some people might kind of fight me over that discrepancy, I think. But for the most part, that's the number that I put him at, uh, based on all the films that have been released this year. Uh, released up until this point and based on not short films Um, so you know there are a couple of them that would probably be really easy to watch uh, but but I've I haven't seen them so we're just gonna ignore those for the purposes of today and uh, yeah, let's let's just jump into it, and I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a background on Spielberg and how he fits into my whole spreadsheet. Um, so, tw- like I said, 28 films. He is currently number one in my director's page with a 1.49 point lead over the number two, Christopher Nolan. Um, so... Uh, I I mentioned in the December preview scavenger hunt episode that five Spielberg films were on this month's scavenger hunt. I've I've now seen all five of them. Uh, They will come up throughout the course of this episode. And during that process, Spielberg actually dropped to number four for a moment. Uh, But then he came back up out of there. And I think before I had seen any of the five, he had about a three or four point lead over Nolan. So that gap has been considerably shrunk. And, you know, it just kind of becomes a matter of, do I see a bad Spielberg film before Dunkirk comes out? And is Dunkirk going to be good? You know, Nolan's track record is quite solid. But... We'll see, because I could just see, there could be one of these films that I've missed from Spielberg that's actually really good, and that could just keep him in that untouchable first place uh, tier. And also, kind of middling in the 
less than half a point behind Nolan, you've got number three with Martin Scorsese and number four with Richard Linklater, uh, both of which... Scorsese specifically, I know I still have quite a few of his films I haven't seen. Uh, Linklater less so, but I do think there are a couple left over. And uh, Scorsese has uh, a new one coming out very soon, uh, just in time for award season. Uh, Silence with Andrew Garfield, Adam Driver, Liam Neeson. Uh, So that could definitely bump him all the way up to number one. We'll see. A lot of moving and shaking to go, but for now it is Spielberg alone at the top for with all 28 of his films. And uh, firstly, um, to kind of break down his um, uh, array of, of ratings, so he's got an average film rating of 68.89, which is the lowest average film rating in the top 10 and you'd have to go down to someone. Wow, it's actually a lot further than I expected. You have to go all the way back to Woody Allen, tied for 230th with Akira Kurosawa, to find someone who has an average film rating of lower than 70. Uh, you know, so for that to be, for him to have that low a film rating, but have still the first place score is really impressive. Because that just, you know, and it's all mostly because of what a high film count he has and how that kind of overwhelms the bad films that drag down his rating because his value is just so high. Uh, And we'll we'll get into that a little bit more as well. And it does not hurt that he's had so many Best Director nominations in his career. Um, So currently... He does not have a single film that I've given a 100 to. Uh, I I touched on those films before. There's only uh, six of them at the moment. And, you know, it's... Or, I'm sorry, seven of... Six of them. Yeah, no, I was right. Six of them at the moment. And it's going to be... I I find it very unlikely that Spielberg ever hits that elusive 100. But... It's certainly not out of the realm of possibility. Uh, if you think that the closest he's gotten to that number since like 2000, or even within the last 10 years, I guess would be a better comp, uh, comparison, is Lincoln, which I gave an 88. And, you know, I think Lincoln's great, but I don't think that Spielberg quite has the tenacity and panache that he had back in like the 90s when he was putting back in the 90s like early thousands when he was putting out I think his best work yet at at all at ever and that's why his number one film the only film of his direction that makes my top 100 at the moment oh actually wait a second actually I think it just got bumped out recently um I want to be current I want to be current Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, so he no longer has any films in my top 100. Uh, but the only one that was ever there, uh, since I actually would start able to calculate my top 100, it was Jurassic Park, which is, in my opinion, his best film. Uh, Jurassic Park has a 96 from me. 
And, you know, it, this is the kind of movie that, you know, I've seen it quite a few times. Um, it's really just complete wonderment and wish fulfillment for me. And it was when I was a kid, too. Um, you know, I've seen it actually, uh, 14 times, uh, with the last time being in 2011. And, you know, there's really... There's really nothing that I dislike about the movie. It hits everything you really want it to hit. It has an incredibly competent main character, you know, which what I consider main character in, um, oh, shoot, I'm, I'm not going to remember his name, I'm not going to remember it, what is it, mm, Sam Neill, uh, in Sam Neill, and it has an equally competent and capable female lead in Laura Dern, you've got two wily kids who get in as much trouble as they get themselves out of and you've got dinosaurs you've got dinosaurs like as far as i knew as a kid like real living effective scary and amazing dinosaurs you know when i was a kid i loved the land before time series i loved jurassic park i loved all the sequels to jurassic park um we're back a dinosaur story was a favorite of mine as a kid. Uh, I watched a ton of like of archaeolog archaeological documentaries when I was younger. I had dinosaur books. I had dinosaur cakes at my birthday parties. I had like toy dinosaurs and everything. Like I love them so much. I you know I still have posters in my room with dinosaurs on them when I go home. So I that that was a big part of my childhood. And this movie took them, made them real, gave me the amazing, wonderful side of them, and also the terrifying, life-threatening side of them in an aesthetically pleasing, well-crafted, well-cast, well-acted, well-written story. And I just... I ate it up. I, I could not, you know, I, it was a movie that like, you know, I didn't have cable growing up unless I was at somebody else's house. And if it was on, I watched it. I didn't own the movie. I don't think I, I, I still don't own the movie. Um, but if I had 14 would have been pennies compared to how many times I actually watched the movie. And it, it's just something that's stuck with me time and time and time again. You know, I think of the uh, um, the scene, pretty much any scene with uh, Malcolm <laughs> um, or, uh, um, man, I cannot remember anybody's name. Um, it's going to be on here somewhere. Jeff Goldblum. Pretty much all of his scenes are great, uh, you know, when he's lying on the table with, like, his chest bare, when he's showing Laura Dern, like, the drop of water running down her hand, um, you know, when he's going through, like, the man creates dinosaur, dinosaur eats man, 
And she says, women inherits the earth. Like, oh, all these moments are so beautiful and great. You've got Samuel L. Jackson just being this calm, badass guy who, like, kind of embodies all the hatred that you have for Wayne Knight's character throughout the movie. And there, there's so much to love about this movie. I don't know... I don't know anyone who doesn't like it. I know there are plenty of people who don't love it as much as I do, but I don't know anyone who doesn't like it. And that's kind of Spielberg's thing, is making movies that everyone at least likes. And for me, this is the one that connects with me the most, and the one that I could not get enough of as a kid. And so that's Jurassic Park, Spielberg's number one best film. Number two is probably one of the bigger controversies at the top of my list, and that's Catch Me If You Can. Now, I saw this in the theaters. I didn't know anything about it when I went and saw it. I didn't have any preconceptions about what it was. Um, I think my aunt and uncle, my aunt took me to see it when I was pretty young, actually. Like, it came out in 2002, so I was like, 11 or 12 I was actually 10 or 11 at the time and I liked it when I first saw it but I didn't really understand it that much you know there's a lot of moving parts in this movie it's a little long for someone that young but I knew I liked it and so a couple of years after that when I was like 13 14 and could actually follow the story and figure out what exactly was happening um i started watching it again and again i would rent it from the library a lot and uh, i really enjoyed dicaprio and tom hanks um bat bat uh, butting heads against each other and so i've seen it now 15 times uh with the last time being in 2009 and uh, it's only got one less point than Jurassic Park, so Catch Me If You Can has a 96, or 5 for me, sorry. And the thing that I like the most um, is pretty much the conflict between the two leads, between Hanks and DiCaprio. They work so well together. You've got, you know, a great, great, great supporting cast um, with you know, Amy Adams uh, in a small role. You've got um, Amy Acker in a small role. Chris Ellis in a small role. Christopher Walken as DiCaprio's dad. Martin Sheen is in it. Uh, I think as Amy Adams' dad, if I remember correctly. Um, Elizabeth Banks is in this movie as another one of the girls. Uh, Ellen Pompeo is in this movie. James Brolin is in this movie. You've got a strong, strong cast. And you've got a lot of young, future, big stars. And, you know, a lot, and like Tom Hanks in like part of. I mean, Tom Hanks' prime spans for like about 20 years, really. And this is in that era. And this is the movie that kind of introduced me to the sort of meta-genre of 
deception. And what I mean by that is it's like a movie where you're constantly the character it's kind of like a like an Ocean's 11 type of thing where not everything is as it seems. You are constantly being shown reveals that oh, this is actually this and sometimes you'll see things that you don't understand until they play out and pay off later. Um, and like Ocean's Eleven kind of does all of that in one big scene at the end of the movie. And Catch Me If You Can does it in smaller scenes throughout the movie, you know, as Abernathy pretends to be a pilot and a doctor and, you know, he's got all these different names and he's getting all these checks and he's cashing them and, you know, he's cheating the system and he's outthinking Hanks at every turn and I just I found it so incredibly engrossing as a film and I was incredibly invested in what was going on and I just it's one of those movies that I'm like oh this is so cool uh, you know this is what I like I like seeing this I like experiencing this and feeling like I'm a part of it because I know what he's doing you know, and you get that mindset of like, oh, I could totally do that, and you really couldn't, but but you, you think you can, and that's really fun to watch and experience. Uh, so, Catch Me If You Can, number two. Uh, number three is the first film on the list that Spielberg was actually nominated for Best Director for, uh, and he won it for this one, and that is... Saving Private Ryan, which I have given a 94. Um, I think Saving Private Ryan is uh, definitely a film that is always near the top of anyone's best of Spielberg lists. Um, it came out in 1998, and like I said, I gave it a 94. I think it's incredible, and I've only seen it one time. And that was in 2011. Uh, so it has not... This is one of those movies that I watched early on when I really started to get into film. And one that was incredibly impressive to me. Uh, you know, you've got, again, Tom Hanks, frequent collaborator. Um, this time working with Matt Damon. Um, it has my name in the title if, with Saving Private Ryan, which is nice. I mean, I, I don't know. I It doesn't really... People that have characters or like anything that has my name in movies has never really, I don't know, affected me in any way, positively or negatively. You've got Paul Giamatti, uh, Jeremy Davies, Ted Danson, Dennis Farina, uh, Ryan Hurst, uh, Tom Sizemore, Brian Cranston, Andrew Scott, Adam Goldberg, Barry Pepper, Giovanni Ribisi, Edward Burns, Dimitri Goritzas, Harvey Presnell, Vin Diesel, Max Martini. Uh, so pretty much an all-male cast, uh, which for this film is fine uh you know you've you know unlike you know at least unlike catch me if you can where 
pretty much all the female characters are just goo-goo for DiCaprio. Um, at least there aren't bad female characters, really, in Saving Private Ryan that I remember anyway. Like I said, it's been five years. But it just... It's such an incredible story. Uh, the way that Hanks and his group, you know, they go out to rescue this one guy whose brothers have all died and bring him home to make sure that, you know, they don't, like, at least one of his mother's kids makes it. And that's really emotional. And, I, but I, I, at the same time, I think that it's really a silly concept. And I, you know, I'll admit, be the first to admit, I'm not at all well versed in the workings of the military and things like that. The majority of my knowledge from those groups comes from documentaries and films, which can only be trusted as far as you can throw them. So, you know, I mean, I guess you can throw a movie pretty far. Regardless, it, it seems like, on the surface, it seems like this is a waste of time, you know? And I don't mean that flippantly. I mean that, you know, I think there were, what, four or five guys in Tom Hanks' group that go out to find Matt Damon, and yes, it's great that they save him, and he's probably dead without them going back for him, but I do feel as though those same four or five guys would have done greater, would have yielded greater results for, you know, whatever service and whatever they were trying to do, they could have gotten, they could have saved more lives doing something else, if that makes any sense. You know, and I can't, no one knows that for sure, but it feels as though the entire plot of this movie hinges on we just want to make sure that this one family doesn't lose all their kids. Which seems, seems kind of silly. That said, it makes for a great emotional film that tugs at your heartstrings, you care about these characters, you don't even have to meet Matt Damon to be invested in his story, and then you do meet him, and he's charismatic as hell, and it only furthers, only serves to further enhance just how much you want him to make it out alive. And then you've got Spielberg's direction, which just does a great job with all the war scenes, all the battles. They're really beautiful to see. And, you know, still some of the best war scenes put to film 18 years later. And that's saying something, considering how many war films have come out in, those, in that many years. You know, you've got to have, there's got to be at least 15 each year. And for Saving Private Ryan to still be kind of this bar to reach and to uh, to surpass for that genre is incredibly impressive. So, Saving Private Ryan, while 
definitely not the film that I find that is like the favorite. My favorite one is a film that I think is in quality one of the best ones that he that Spielberg has ever made. Uh, and it's my lack of love for the film, at least to the extent that I have it for Jurassic Park and Catch Me If You Can, that drops it to third place with a score of 94. Um, staying in the 90s, uh, we've got another film where Spielberg was nominated for Best Director in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Now... I think a lot of people are going to say it's only Raiders of the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Ark. Raiders of the Raiders. Raiders of the Lost Ark. I have it mistyped here. Um and to those people I say maybe. <laughs> I don't I don't know. It depends like yeah. That's kind of what it was, get the title it had on the marquee. That's what IMDb calls it. Um, but at the same time, it's like, it's like Star Wars, right? You know, you can't, it, it's just basically been retrofitted to have a better, a more appropriate title for what it is and you know I don't know the story behind the film I don't know if they had planned to make four films or more when they started or at least three to make the trilogy you know I don't know I feel like I've heard that I heard whether or not that was the case when it by on some by somebody at some point I don't remember but I think that I, I, at least for the purposes of my spreadsheet, it is easier for me to keep the title as Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark than it would be to just make it Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, that being said, uh, it's got a 92, like, like I mentioned, uh, to make it his fourth best film. And his... Again, his second that has been nom- that he was nominated for Best Director in. He did not win for Raiders, however. And it is heads and shoulders, in my opinion, the best film of the Indiana Jones current uh, quadrology. And, you know, obviously we will get to the others as we go along. But I just think that Raiders is... I don't I just you know it it has a lot of magic and you know coolness and adventureness that I think that the rest of the movie the Indiana Jones films don't quite live up to and I I think I think that Last Crusade and Temple of you know Temple of Doom, I think, fails on an inspiring adventureness level. I think Last Crusade is too funny for its own good. I think that's where it loses a lot of its points. And we don't even need to discuss Crystal Skull. 
really, um, and why it doesn't live up to this movie. But, uh, you know, Raiders is, you know, a lot of people's favorite movie. And you've got Spielberg's uh, connection with Harrison Ford, who is just idyllic in this role. He embodies it. He personifies it. It is pretty much just Harrison Ford being Harrison Ford if he had a whip and a hat. And I think that's great. And then you've also got the great uh, Karen Black and Alfred Molina in this movie, which I love. You know, I love Alfred Molina. Karen Allen, I'm sorry. Um, you know, it, it's... You know, it's it's movies that... This came out such a long time ago from my standards. So, like, this is ten years before I was born that this movie came out. And by the time I watched it, uh, which was in, for the first time in 2012, I was 21 when I first watched this movie. And that's kind of criminal, almost, to have waited that long. You know, it's currently my highest rated film that came out from 1981 and it, it even that long so even 30 years after it came out I still was just enamored by it and it still left a huge imprint on me and it did take me quite some time to watch the sequels to it but only because, you know, the word of mouth on those was good, but not as good as the original. And while that describes a lot of movie sequels, it was something that I really couldn't get over uh, so much when, at the time. And have since kind of ignored that word of mouth trapping that seems to happen to a lot of movies. And I just, you know... My, my favorite part, and I think what might be a lot of people's favorite moment from that movie, is the, you know, gun versus sword fight. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. And, you know, with the story behind it being like that it was completely improv because Harrison Ford was sick that day. You know, that's a great story. And it's a great scene. And I love it so much. So that's Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, number four. Moving on to number five, and the last film from Spielberg in the 90s, with a 91, is Jaws. And Jaws is actually, I believe, the first Spielberg film I ever saw. I think. I, it was either Jaws or E.T., and I'm not sure which one, but I'm I'm fairly positive it was Jaws. According to my spreadsheet, it was Jaws, but they were both so long ago that it's hard to remember. My dad actually uh, showed me Jaws when I was like seven years old or so, and it terrified 
the shit out of me. <laughs> I I did my best to like hide it from him while we were watching the movie. And, you know, gosh, the shark jumping up on the boat and, like, eating of people and just, oh, just... The dan it dan it dan it dan it dan it Oh, I was just out of my mind scared as a kid from this movie. because And, you know, it probably contributes to my, like, fear of deep water. Because, like, I don't... I don't have any problem with pools, but if you're, I you would not catch me dead on the ocean. You would only catch me dead on the ocean. I guess would make more sense to say. I just I hate the idea of it, and you know you watch a movie like Jaws or The Shallows or Piranha or Anaconda or any of those movies where people are out on a boat in the middle of the ocean, or stranded in the ocean, or whatever, in the ocean, and it's just like, all it takes is one mistake, one person falling overboard, one cut in the water, one uh, dead engine, and you're toast, you're toast, and this is the movie that started that for me, and it is so effective at thrilling you and scaring you and sort of attacking your senses in a way that I had definitely never experienced at the time that I saw it first and have rarely experienced since then and I just there's there's not much else I can say about it like it's just one of those movies that you can't help but keep with you uh, many, many, many years after seeing it. Um, Alright, number six, the best film uh, from Spielberg that is ranked in the 80s and his third nomination on the going down the list is Lincoln uh, which came out very recently compared to a lot of the earlier films I listed. Uh, and so that's 2012's Lincoln, uh, which I saw in 20 on December 31st of 2012. So I saw it at the theater uh, on on New Year's Eve. And you know, again, this is another longer film from Spielberg, just about two and a half hours. And at this point, I was already deep into the throes of kind of. Mm, into kind of recognizing and appreciating more intellectual and prestige films than I was uh, before then. And so, you know, I absolutely fell in love with Daniel Day-Lewis's performance. I think it was incredible. I completely agreed that when he won the Oscar that year... You know, it was just a powerhouse performance. And while there are definite, there are quite a few films uh, from that year that I actually rank above Lincoln, uh, which appear to be 38 total films. So, you know, there's a lot of films that I put above Lincoln for the year. It's still 
got that Spielberg trademark of being a movie that when you watch it, you like it, and you can see the care and devotion that went into making it, from the performances, to the direction, to the sets, to the costumes, to everything about it. You know, you've got these really tiny roles by really well-known people like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and you can see just how involved everybody is in trying to make these films that Spielberg creates as good as they possibly can. And Lincoln kind of really steps above a lot of the other films that he's made. And I think that it's I think it's definitely his best film in the last 10 years that he's made. And I kind of feel like it might be the best film he'll make going forward. You know, I don't know if he'll ever reach that height again. I I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility, but I do think that it's getting harder and harder for him to reach that many people in that much of a... It's harder for him to cast such a wide net and get such a great reward for it, if that makes sense. So, Lincoln, number six. Uh, Number seven, another film where Spielberg was nominated for Best Director with an 87, E.T. the Extraterrestrial. And, I mean, this is just that... It's it's interesting, like, this is one of those movies that I watched as a kid, and I liked it as a kid. I didn't love it. It wasn't something I was ever obsessed over. You know, I wasn't watching it on repeat all the time. I believe I've only ever seen it once. But it is a movie where, looking back on it now, I appreciate it a lot more than I did. And I definitely see the influence that it's had on other films that have come out since then. And I'm really thankful for that because it is a great film. And one that I think has done a really good job of standing the test of time. When you know you look at a movie like Saving Private Ryan or... a lot of the movies that I've already mentioned, Jurassic Park or Raiders and Jaws, and I think that they hold up really well because you've got all these great practical effects that even by today's standards are more than great. I do feel that E.T. is not as high a caliber as some of the other ones in that department. I think that E.T.'s, mm, I guess, puppet costume thing, I, it's so difficult. I think, I think the reason it doesn't work as well is because it isn't a real creature that we're aware of. It's not a, 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 uh, it's not a thing that we've ever seen outside of that movie. And that's why it doesn't look as good as it does today as it did then. 
Whereas movies like Jaws, movies like Jurassic Park, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex, we have we've seen those all over the place. Great White Sharks, we see those all the time, and that's why they hold up so well because we know that they look exactly like the thing that they're supposed to look like. Whereas, if there really is a race of ET things out there somewhere, we don't know, and so it's really difficult to tell whether or not how accurate it is and and it's just if they are if they do look like that it still it never feels quite right in that sense but you know this is just another great example of spielberg capturing the minds and fantasy of kids and really taking them on a journey that so many kids took and Um, it just, you know, 1982, E.T. the Extraterrestrial, one of the biggest movies that year, and kind of just, you know, it's, you know, I keep saying this for all of his films, but it's just a film that everyone liked, and, you know, maybe it wasn't everyone's favorite movie as a kid, maybe, you know, people were, there were more people like me who grew up after 1982, or people who already too old but when it came out but you still you know you watched it with your kids or you um or you know your your parents watched it when they were kids and so they showed it to you and everyone i feel like everyone as either has some direct or indirect experience with this movie and it's impacted them in some way and i think that's a really you know, tough thing to avoid. I think you have to recognize that because it is such an impressionable film. It really gives you that sense of, man, I I could just be riding my bike and stumble upon something amazing and special out of nowhere. Or, you know, it could just be hiding in my sister's dolls closet or whatever um but et the extraterrestrial is number seven on steven spielberg's list moving on to number eight we have uh with a with a score of 85 a science fiction film and a little more of an adult bent to it bend to it a film i've seen three times from 2002, Minority Report. And Minority Report is a movie that I actually, it gained a lot of favor from me after the last time I'd seen, I'd seen it. Uh, you know, I always liked it. You know, I watched it multiple times. I thought it was fun. But the more I've thought about it since having seen it, the more I appreciate the story it's telling because this is one that kind of deviates from Spielberg's general uh, oeuvre, oeuvre with simply it's not necessarily liked by everybody. It does have a bit of a dark twist to it. It, it goes places that a lot of Spielberg films won't go. And it's more of an intellectual, thought-provoking movie than an action, big-budget adventure film. And with... Tom Cruise in the lead role, you know, you've got a very mag- 
magmatic star and it just seeks it it ends up being you know a really well well thought out thought-provoking movie that is hit or miss with most people i feel you know maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong but that's that's just how i feel about it and for me it's a hit i really like this movie i think it's great and um just man just like seeing tom cruise like uh go do using those like air hologram screens and the idea of stopping crimes before they happen is such a such a crazy idea because you wonder if that's really like if we could do that would it be possible would it be ethical would it be moral is you know would have i had thoughts in my life that would have triggered their machine and if i did and it and if it did like clearly that would have been a mistake because i haven't acted on any of those thoughts if i've had them or you know and it's like well what kind of margin of error could there possibly be and you don't you're not really know, you don't really know for sure and you're kind of led to believe that this movie doesn't have any but then you have this whole idea that the Tom Cruise character does he is he led into that thought process when he sees his name come up or does he is that all going is everything going to happen whether or not he sees it but if he doesn't see it how could he possibly do any of the things you know it's like got this incredibly you know it's dealing with some sort of time bending mechanics so you've got these paradoxes that are inherent in any movie like this and while it's easy to you know monday night <laughs> monday morning quarterback this whole thing you can when you're watching it you don't have any of those thoughts you're not thinking about that at least i wasn't you know necessarily you know you're just you're caught up in the action of it all you're caught up in the escape and uh defiance of it all and it, it just it just it, it grabs you and hooks you in and doesn't let go in a way that i think most Spielberg films do that but minority report is able to do it minority part does it minority report does it differently and it relies on a lot of things that i don't think you generally see in most of spielberg's films and so it does kind of feel like an outlier in some sense which is nice you know you know there's a couple of those that are out on 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 his filmography that are outliers for various reasons and you know as we come across them i will address them um but as far as minority report goes number eight overall with an 85 yep moving on to number nine for with an 84 another nominated direction film from spielberg 
and his second win for Best Director at the Oscars is the seminal film Schindler's List. And uh, this is another one of those films that I watched for the first time relatively recently in 2011, uh, shortly after really getting into watching films, and one that on first reaction, I didn't entirely find enjoyable or good. And the reason being that I just thought it was really boring. (laughs) And I do still think there, there is a boring element to the movie in some sense. But over time, I've grown to appreciate it a lot more. And its score has um, has definitely uh, moved up since it was first added to the spreadsheet. Um, you know, so it's an 84 now, and I've I've only seen it once. I don't really care to see it again. You know, it's like three hours long, and I do think it's a very good movie. I think it is a better movie than I like it as a movie. And, you know, you definitely see Spielberg really on his A-game in this one. You know, the direction I knew from when I first saw it was top-notch. But I just... It it was... It's such a... An understated and muted film, in my opinion. That it was really hard for me to connect to it on any level. And it's only been, you know, retrospective, looking back on it, that I really can see the quality of the film outside of the direction and the layout of it. Which, you know, I mean, apparently most people think it's amazing. And I think it's great. I don't think it's one of Spielberg's best, best films, but it is, you know, clearly in his top ten. I have it as number nine. And I imagine, I'm, I, I think it'll probably stay in his top ten. You know, it would need, it would take two films to come out from Spielberg that are better than Schindler's List, which, like I said when I talked about, uh... Lincoln, I don't think he's got two left in him, let alone necessarily... You know, I don't think he's got one le- left in him, let alone two. So uh, that will be something to keep an eye on going forward. But, you know, I don't really have too much more to say about Schindler's List. It's it's a real downer of a movie. You know, it was right when uh, Spielberg was kind of hitting his... I'm going to make movies about depressing things time. And, you know, his depressing movies are just as good as his fun movies. You know, he's a great filmmaker. He has that element on both sides of the spectrum. So, it's a great movie. I like it enough. And it's his ninth best film overall.
rounding out the top 10 with an 83 is a film that I really don't even, like, I forget that Spielberg even directed this movie uh, whenever it comes up, uh, which is Munich. Uh, another film that I watched in 2011. So I saw a lot of Spielberg that year. And this movie came out in 2005. And it it, it really wasn't a movie that I had any expectations for. You know, I wasn't didn't watch it intending to see a Spielberg film. I wasn't thinking that it was going to you know, have a huge impact on me, and it really didn't, you know, I don't, it didn't affect me in any way, but, you know, just Eric Bana, his performance is really captivating, and, you know, this is another film where Spielberg is nominated for Best Director, and I just, I just thought it was really well made, it, it's not flashy, it doesn't try to, like, do anything, too extravagant and in a way it kind of reminds me of Bridge of Spies in that way but I think that Munich is much better like source material that it's pulling from it's a much more interesting story than Bridge of Spies uh, which is why it's ahead of Bridge of Spies and ultimately gets that 10th spot and Yeah, I mean, it also, it touches on a subject that I, I literally knew nothing about prior to the movie. You know, I wasn't really aware of the Munich Olympics. I don't, I never read anything on the subject. It was never brought up in school or really in conversation with anyone I knew. And so just getting that fresh perspective on 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 that topic from this movie was something that intrigued me and and was really eye-opening for me and so it did kind of shed a light on something that I wasn't aware of and in that way it affected me but you know the movie itself and the way it was made that didn't leave too much of an imprint you know I can't really recall any of the scenes from the movie you know I only remember Eric Bana being in it and really just appreciating the direction for for what it was um so I'll leave that one right there. Number 11, which is a movie that is another is another movie that is kind of a step outside of Spielberg's uh, typical formula because it's an animated film. I gave it an 82, and that is The Adventures of Tintin. And it's a shame that this didn't get more publicity when it first came out. Uh, I remember watching it uh, on Netflix, I think, uh, early in 2013. You know, it came out in 2011. And, you know, I don't... I had no idea what it was about, but... What, one of the things that has stuck with me with from this movie is... There's like an ending chase action scene. And if I'm recalling correctly, there's a crane that like falls into some sort of glass building, I want to say. It's a little fuzzy, but I, I, I do remember really enjoying the 
kind of action in this movie, which is strange. You don't normally think of an animated film as having good action. But I thought this did really strong, had really good action. I loved the way it was animated. It was so interesting and, and different from everything else that was coming out at that time. You know, you're looking at other 2011 animated films, and you've got Kung Fu Panda 2, A Cat in Paris, Puss in Boots, Winnie the Pooh, um, going up the list here, uh, Rango, which won Best Animated Feature that year, and it, you know, this is, The Adventures of Tintin is, is so unlike pretty much all of those other movies, you know, it features human beings doing human being things, and it just kind of, it's like an animated version of everything Spielberg loves, you know, it's a young kid, who, you know, finds this secret and has to follow these clues and figure out the mystery of it. And, like, that's just Indiana Jones and E.T. and Jurassic Park. It's like all of those ideas melded into one. And I really, really like that. And so while it doesn't break into the top ten, it is a really high-quality film from Spielberg late in his career. And I think I'd like to see him experiment more with animation, with new styles of film. Because, and I, I think I think he tried that with the BFG, and it was unsuccessful, which is a shame. You know, we'll get to that later. But Adventures of Tintin, 82. And finally... Rounding out the top 12 and the last of the films rated in the 80s with a flat 80 is uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Now, I did mention that I found this film to be more funny than adventure uh, in comparison to Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I, I stand by that. And that's the reason that it's, you know, 12, 11 points uh, lower than Raiders. Uh, 12, 12 points lower. But it's still a really enjoyable movie. Like, I had a great time watching it. And, you know, the, the chemistry between Harrison Ford and Sean Connery is fantastic. They have such a... They do such a good job together. And really hammer home just how much fun it is to experience something and go through something with someone else who also has the same sort of love and affection for that thing that you do. You know, like, the the two of them just, like, loving adventures, both going on it, and, man, and then that, that scene where, like, the car goes over the cliff, and you, you know that he's okay, but... Connery sells it so well there in that scene. And it's good. It's really good. And the humor is great. Like don't get me wrong, I think this is the this one has the best humor of the mo of all of them. But I think that the quality of Raiders sort of adventureness is higher than the quality of Tem uh, of of um, Last Crusade's humor. And I think, and I also think it's harder to pull off a good adventure movie than it is to pull off a good comedy. 
it's it's I think you know you can you know a lot of comedies now it's just throw everything you can at the wall and what sticks sticks and it's easy to do that and land half the jokes whereas you know you get one shot at creating a good adventure narrative and if at any point there's a misstep you're fucked like you, you just everything runs off the rails you lose track of the whole story and everything falls apart whereas you know you miss one joke that's fine there's like 300 more to follow so that's kind of why uh, Last Crusade ends up lower than Raiders for me. And now we move into the 70 rated films. He's got three of those uh, topping the list with a 74. And so so the actually the next two both have a 74, but the one with the better tiebreakers is Bridge of Spies uh, with a higher Rotten Tomato score than the film after it. And so that's the film from last year that won Mark Rylance, his Best Supporting Actor, Oscar. And it's a really solid film. You know, this is the kind of movie that kind of feels like the norm for Spielberg. You know, he kind of... All of his films start at this level of quality for me, in some sense. You know? And then you've got all the films that I've already named that build upon his level of craft and exceed expectations and then the uh, majority of the films that come after this uh, depreciate in value based on casting based on performance based on story based on writing you know some aspect of it just doesn't quite live up to the standard that he has created for himself and bridge of spies hits that on the nose it's got great acting from hanks and Rylance, but it's got a really weak narrative that I didn't really care about and was hard to connect with at all. It was really slow. I don't think it moved well enough, but, you know, it, it looked gorgeous. It had great sets, great uh, atmosphere, uh, great dialogue, but I just... It wasn't a movie that mm, inspired me in any way. And I'm happy for Rylance. It's not who I would have picked to win that year. But I don't, I don't find a huge amount of fault in that decision. So, he, he Bridge of Spies. Bridge of Spies. Uh, the other film, with a 74, slightly lower Rotten Tomatoes score is Warhorse. And uh, Warhorse gets I feel like it gets a bad rap. It, it's cuz its main character effectively is a horse as it kind of moves around from owner to owner to owner. But I I found that kind of charming in a way. It was really interesting to see just how the horse changing hands and changing ownership affected it and you know you want you grew old with the horse watching the movie and experienced all these different things and like that's so in a way that's very similar to to real life for a person but in another way it's really different and 
you know, because you, you do go through these stages of life. You know, you go through infancy and then you enter grade school and then, you know, you hit puberty and like high school is completely different from the grade school leading up to it. And then if you end up in college, that's a completely different thing. Or if you end up going into like one of the armed forces or if you end up going to work and then like all of those can kind of roll into each other and then you enter the family stage and then you have kids and then you have those kids are doing the same things that you went through but now you're experiencing it from a different reference point and so in that sense you've got all these different stages to your life and you're watching this horse go through all the different stages of its life and there's something really beautiful about that whereas at the same time it's not as though, in, in, a di in the way that it's different, it's not as though, and, and, and some I guess for some people it is, but for the majority of people, you don't go through different parents, like every year, every two months, every however often that this horse changed owners. You, you do have some sense of, stability in most people's lives you know you're always a lot of people end up always having the same parental figures in their life you know they always have the same family to count on and this horse didn't really have that it just kind of moved from one person to the next as they saw fit it didn't have a lot of control over who it stood by over who let it who it let ride it and that's kind of sad and so I think the movie does a really good job at getting you to connect with the horse. But I think it's way too long for the story it's telling. It, it's so long for the story it's telling. And that's a shame. I wish it wasn't. I wish it wasn't that long because then it probably would have had a much higher score. But 74 is where it lands for me. Number 15, another Oscar-nominated directing performance from Spielberg is a movie with that I've given a 72, and that's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And this might seem a little low to some of you. Uh, this is a 1977 film, so a much older, back sort of in the Jaws era, effectively. Uh, this is a movie that I've only seen once. It was a long time ago, uh, 2003. And, you know, I've kind of got the same sort of splotchy memory for this that I do for some of the others, where it's just like, this means something. As he's, like, messing with smashed potatoes, and I've seen that scene parodied and referenced in a lot of other media. And, you know, I remember the spaceship and all the dazzling lights and... This is one of the films that I think this is this is the film with that I, I really liked Richard Dreyfus the most in, as far as Spielberg goes. Uh, you know, I've recently saw him in their collaboration for Always and hated it, hated him in that. But I, I do like him a lot in this movie. I think he's great in the role, and I think for me it just hits that same sort of ex expected level for Spielberg. I don't think 
he did enough to elevate it above that standard and I don't think it really I don't think anything was so bad that it dropped it below that standard. I just think it hits that solid Spielberg level and I that's a great level to be on. You know, there's nothing wrong with that level. If if every I think any director would be happy to make a film for all of their films to be at that level of quality because it is a really high standard and it's really impressive that he's able to keep that up for so many years. And very few directors are able to do that. Um, now we move into the films rated in the 60s. Uh, there are three of those here. And the first one, which has a 66, is The Terminal. And this is another one that I watched, ended up watching quite a bit as a kid, um, or while I was like a teenager. Uh, you know, I've seen it six times, and I was always, I, I love the, the idea of it. You know, it's such an odd circumstance, like literally a guy without a country without any home to go back to, a citizen of nowhere. And I find those scenarios really intriguing. And it's, it's you know, it's another collaboration between Hanks and Spielberg. And I find this one to be one of the lesser of those in some senses. You know, it's it's an interesting movie, but it doesn't really go anywhere too often you've got Diego Luna and and kind of helping and like the other janitorial staff and basically the movie is just the the I wish the movie had focused more on the man without a country aspect and I think that the film shies away from that because you are so entrenched in that narrative by him simply living at the airport but I don't think that that's fair to the film. I, I think that that definitely detracts from the power of that story because then we end up focusing far too much on the Catherine Zeta-Jones character who, you know, is fine in her own right, but, like, I think that he took the story too far into a, into an appropriate sappy romance direction and I don't mind that those elements would be in there if the movie had just spent more time on the drama of where the hell is he going to go what's going to happen you know give us more Tom Hanks and Stanley Tucci please please that's what I wanted I, I love that film I, I think it's I really enjoy it I think it's really fun to watch but I think that this is an example where I like it a lot more than it's good. As opposed to Schindler's List, where I think it's a much better film than I like it as. Uh, number 17, uh, a movie that I recently just watched, uh, as early as like three days ago, is Amistad with a 63. And... I did not have expectations for this film, or the expectations I had for this film were not met in any way uh, from a purely story standpoint. 
you know, I was thinking that this was going to be much more of a um, sort of just on the sea movie, and it ends up being like a courtroom drama, which completely threw me off guard. But I didn't hate that. I think that this movie is a case of Spielberg being a little too on the nose with a lot of things, you know, between like the historical inaccuracies to just how utterly perfect Anthony Hopkins' final speech is. Like, it's way too perfect. You know, I wish it had been written by someone like Sorkin who could have given it more of a flair because it's a nice speech, but it doesn't quite have the sort of visceral impact that it probably should have. So, in that regard, it's fine. And I think it's a little better than fine, but it's definitely a step down from the level of expectation that you put on a film from Spielberg, in my opinion. But Jimin Hounsu is fantastic. He is my favorite part of that movie. I think he does such a great job. He brings such a physical and emotional presence to the movie that you don't really get to see a lot in uh, in Spielberg's movies. You know, I think he does a great job embodying that that role really well, really well. Lastly, in the '60s category, with a '61 is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. So rounding out the trilogy is the number two film, Temple of Doom, which I think I'm I'm not far off base when I say that it, it kind of fails to be fun, as fun as the other movies. It fails to be as funny. It fails to have quite, as they have the same level of adventure. And you have like, the weakest female character in the series in this one. And while there are some notable moments here and there, it relies heavily on those moments, whereas uh, uh, Last Crusade and to a much and to a higher extent, Raiders don't need to rely on single moments to carry their film. Their films as a whole are very strong. So in that respect, I wish and I, I don't I don't know, I don't want to like try and sit here and fix these movies that aren't great, but I wish the Temple of Doom had been more of a cohesive unit than like a spiked uh, heart monitor graph of good moments and deep valleys Uh, but I mean like you've got Harrison Ford in an Indiana Jones role before he gets old so you know it's still a fun movie it's not a bad movie I still have it on the positive side it's got a 61 it just it could have been so much better I think and that's ultimately what drags it down for me Moving on to the 50s. He's got six films in the 50s. So six films rated relatively averagely. And, you know, I 
realize the podcast this episode is getting a little long so i'm trying to kind of accelerate a little bit a little bit here uh so number 19 with a 58 is duel which is one of the first films spielberg ever directed and it's like a made for tv movie no recognizable actors in it very straight and to the point but also you know to that and it's very simple and incomplex which at times makes the movie more interesting and then at other times less because it is like an hour and a half long it does take place if over the course of like two hours of real time and it's not the best like crazy driver chaser movie i've seen you know this this type of movie has been done since then better and i i kind of see this as more of a like this is an example of spielberg's direction and how strong it is but the material that he's working with is really subpar and he gets a lot out of it that I think most directors would not be able to do, which is why I don't have it rated below a 50. But I think there's kind of an, a ceiling to how high this movie could have gone, regardless of who's behind the camera. And I think without like some extensive rewrites, it was destined to only go this high. And so that's kind of where I see Duel at. At number 20, uh, with a 55, is another film that I recently watched, and that is AI Artificial Intelligence. Um, yeah, I... It's so... It's strange. You know, you, you think of a Spielberg film, and they're all really well put together. And this was the first one I watched that I felt like it wasn't. And... You know, that might have something to do with the involvement, you know, if with t- adapting it and taking it away from Kubrick. Or maybe this story's just a little too wide for Spielberg to really rein it in. But, you know, it feels like the first half hour you're watching this movie, and then all of a sudden you're watching a different movie, and then somehow the two movies come together... And then they give birth to, like, a third movie at the end for, like, the last 40 minutes. It's really weird, and I don't like the structure. I don't like the act pacing. It just, it it really rubbed me the wrong way. The reason that it's not, like, a bad movie is Haley Joel Osment's performance is really good, firstly. The world created, while poorly explained and delved into in my opinion is fascinating and uh, I was able to kind of I ended up watching this it ended up being like 30 to 60 minutes longer than the actual runtime because like I was doing other things while watching it and so that additional time gave me the idea the option the gave me the opportunity to dwell more on the world that was being inhabited and that I think 
helped me while I was watching it. So, it's fine. It's fine. I think, you know, I saw some reviews on Letterboxd saying that, like, this is the best Spielberg film. I respectfully disagree with that. And, you know, I read those reviews, and I don't see what they're saying about this movie. It didn't hit me that way at all. But, you know, hey, look, this is a subjective medium. And everyone's going to have a different experience with every movie from everyone else. So... This is just me saying that I think AI, Artificial Intelligence, is the 20th best film from Spielberg. Um, number 21, and we have finally reached a point where no other director on my list has this many movies. So Woody Allen could match Spielberg up to 20, but 21, he is now alone by himself. And will be all the way through 28, as would make sense. Uh, so number 21, third film in the 50s, with a 53, is Empire of the Sun. And Empire of the Sun is kind of a mix between the childhood adventure films that Spielberg makes and the heavy drama films that he makes and he tries to combine them into two and I think he does a solid job of it uh, you know he, he, it, it's not easy it's definitely a difficult combination to to, to uh, yield anything solid out of you know you think of a lot of movies like a lot of Miyazaki films, a lot of Ghibli, Ghibli films do this really well. And I don't think Spielberg quite has it down like they do. But Christian Bale is great as the young kid in this movie. You've got John Malkovich, who I think does a fantastic job being kind of this like anti-hero, antagonist kind of character. And the backdrop for the film is really really well put together you know living in shanghai you do you feel like you're there you and you know maybe that was actually shot there uh, probably wasn't but you, you feel the culture you feel the impact of world war ii on this culture in the movie but i just i don't think that he had a deft enough hand to combine his lighter adventure movie character and sense of wonderment with his headier, heavier drama war type movies. And I think that's ultimately why it doesn't succeed. Um, number 22 uh, is War of the Worlds <laughs> with a 52. Uh, it's actually tied with the movie after it, but it has a little bit better tiebreakers. And this met kind of middling re reviews when it came out uh, a couple of years ago. And this is a movie I've actually actually own. I have, a, I have it on DVD. And this is another team up with Tom Cruise. 
and that's uh, that's kind of it. You know, it it doesn't do a ton. It it takes one of the most iconic stories in in media history, and it makes it flashy and puts it up on the big screen in a way that isn't offensive, in a way that's safe. It doesn't really seek to do anything more interesting with the narrative than it's been presented as before. So I can't, it doesn't, I don't find a lot of faults with it. It just feels really bland. And the one thing that kind of keeps it from dipping below the 50 mark is Tom Cruise. I think you know, he's always quite strong in all of his roles, and he does bring that level of charisma, but, you know, he doesn't save the movie from itself, ultimately. He just manages to keep it afloat. Number 23, also with a 52, uh, is Hook. And I think the concept for Hook is great. You've got Peter Pan who's grown old and returns to Neverland. I think that's awesome. I love that concept. The execution isn't quite there. It's it's tough because like it is a kids movie. It's supposed to be silly. But I think that based on the subject matter it has to be a little bit heavier than the way it's presented. You know I, I love the idea of Robin Williams have, have to, having to be more of a kid to fit in, to really become who he used to be. That's great. I think that's a great conceit. But I also feel as though it doesn't play out very well in the movie. I think it's approached poorly. And, you know, I, I give it an A for effort but like a C or a D for execution. You know, and I think one of the better scenes is, you know, the the sitting around the table, like throwing insults back at each other. And that's great scene, but like a lot of the other scenes that are meant to kind of go along with that one in showing Robin Williams kind of reverting back to his younger self don't hit you at all the same way. They're They're much... Too, they're either like too cheesy or they're too on the nose or like they don't have that same sort of vibe emanating from them that, that scene has so Hook I thought it was fine but I, I was a little bored I think it's a little long too if I remember correctly if I can find its runtime on here yeah it's over two hours yeah like, he does really need to kind of work on his run times. Those are kind of an issue. Number 24, the last film in the 50 category, is The Lost World, Jurassic Park. And uh, so he directed the sequel to Jurassic Park. As a kid, I thought it was amazing because it's just more dinosaurs. But... Of all the Jurassic Park movies, this is probably the my least favorite 
like I think it's the least exciting movie. Like you do get your Jeff Goldblum, but like that's it. You don't get Sam Neill. You don't get Laura Dern. It's just Jeff Goldblum, and I love Jeff Goldblum. Don't get me wrong, he's amazing, for sure. But he is so he he's so good in the first movie because of his interactions with the rest of the cast and that the fact that like the rest of the cast doesn't come back for this movie really hurts hurts it and Goldblum by himself is only enough to get us to break even effectively like it's got a 51 and it I think the biggest misstep this film has is creating a second island because that's the entire <coughs> excuse me because that's basically the entire premise that you get from the second movie the third movie is they all go back to the second island which would have probably worked better without this movie in between for us to know that there was a second island and like would have made the reveal better because like we wouldn't have even expected it to be not uh, Isla Isla Sorna is the first one, I believe. Isla Nublar is the second island. And, like, that movie... That movie in and of itself is, like, a whole other creature. Um, but... The Lost World Jurassic Park just doesn't have the same style. Doesn't have the same substance. Doesn't have the same cast as... Jurassic Park does, and it really, really takes a huge hit because it lacks all the key ingredients except for Jeff Goldblum. But as a kid, I really liked it because it had dinosaurs. But what are you going to do? Uh, now we move on to his bad films, uh, movies rated between 25 and 49. He has three of them. And, you know, this going to start out with a movie that might be a little controversial for some of you, and that's The Color Purple. Now, The Color Purple has a great Rotten Tomato score with an 88, and it was nominated for 11 Oscars. It won none of them. Spielberg was not nominated for director, but it got... Uh, a Best Actress nomination, two Best Supporting Actress nominations, Best Picture, Adapted Screenplay, Original Score, Original Song, um, set, set Design, Cinematography, Makeup, and Costume. Like, it got, it pretty much ran the gambit that year with nominations and failed to win any of them. And, you know, it's one of those few films that gets that many nominations and that few wins, you know. You know, recently, that's been done by a film like American Hustle, which got 10 nominations and no wins. So, for me, I think there are a lot of good parts to The Color Purple. You know, I really like Danny Glover in the movie. Uh, I think Oprah's good. I think, um, oh, what's her name? Uh... Mm. Oh, she looks like my friend's mom if she were an African-American. I know that doesn't help you. <laughs> uh, Whoopi. Whoopi. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg. I could. I had Goldberg in my head, but I, I couldn't come up with Whoopi. Uh, 
I think the performances are good. I think it's just really what bothered me most about the movie was just how cliche it was. Uh, you know, I gave it a 47. So I think it's really close to hitting that even mark. But I just found it to be, and like maybe this is simply a product of it being so many years since the movie came out that I finally saw it. Uh, so the movie came out in 85. I saw it January this year. <coughs> and I just found it unremarkable. And, you know, maybe that is my problem because apparently a lot of people really enjoyed the movie. But for me, it, it just, it didn't seem like it did anything special. It felt very mundane. And that's, that's it. Number 26... Uh, with a 40 is a movie that I just saw uh, yesterday and that is the BFG and this was the last of the Spielberg films that I watched for the scavenger hunt insofar as chronologically when I watched them not on the list there's one more left on the list Uh, and this is just a movie that I feel like didn't need to be made, and as opposed to all the other movies on this list, with one exception, I think there's some merit to making them as movies. Whether or not they succeeded is a different question, but you know, even looking at The Color Purple, I think there's a good story in there. I know it's adapted from a book. I've never read the book. I don't know how closely Spielberg adapted it. But the BFG, also adapted from a book, a Roald Dahl book, there's like no story there. It it could have been like a 25-minute short and probably would have been better for it. And it wouldn't have cost as much money and it would have been better. Uh, You know, I just... It was okay and... You know, you've got Mark Rylance again, this time playing the giant, who's fine. Like, the effects are okay. There's some kind of bad ones at points, but overall, it wasn't anything so glaringly awful that it drew me out of the movie altogether. But just, like, I don't, like, I didn't know what the movie was about until an hour into it. And even then, I was like, well, is that really it? Because, like, it's not anything too significant because like it's like a picture book for kids and yeah there have been adaptations of kids books before that have been really successful and done really well but this one just doesn't have it 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 either needed to be a lot shorter or it needed to add some more substance to it or just give it some sort of sense of direction that's what it really lacked is like it didn't know where it was going or what it was doing and that was the biggest problem number 27 uh, with a 33 and the last of the bad movies is always uh, another Richard Dreyfuss film uh, the last of the five scavenger hunt films to, to, to to bring up and Man, like, 
I don't know why he thought this was a good idea to make this movie. It's so sappy, and it's really uncomfortable to watch because it's just really awkward. It, it's so silly. And you've got Richard Dreyfus hamming it up and completely not listening to anything Audrey Hepburn tells him, which is another probably my least favorite aspect of this movie is that it's bad and it's being and it was added to Audrey Hepburn's filmography on my spreadsheet that hurts me most of all but it just it just it feels like a movie that probably you know it's like it could have been made like in the 40s and people would have probably loved it, but in the 80s, no. It's way too late to make a movie like this. It's too sappy. It's too, like, wrapped up in a golden hue that you can't help but just roll your eyes at how stupid it is when you're watching it. As Dreyfus effectively dies, becomes a ghost, kind of, and then, like, pimps out his ex-wife? Like, that's really fucked up, man. I don't... And But, like, that's not at all the tone that the movie takes. The movie is, like, so jovial about every single thing. It's like, oh, this is fun, man. Oh, this is super fun. You know, let's all be dead ghosts helping our spouses move on without us. Like, that's so fucked up but the movie thinks that it's awesome <laughs> that's really strange I don't I don't like that at all and then finally the last film from Steven Spielberg that I've seen number 28 the only awful movie with a 21 and I think some people would say that that's still too high and that is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Now, I watched that for the first time probably a year after it came out, which was in 2008. So I watched it in like 2009. And at the time, I thought it was average. You know, I didn't find it terribly impressive. It was also the second Indiana Jones film that I'd seen. Like, I'd only seen Raiders at that point. Or, wait. No, I I hadn't seen Raiders at that point. That was the first Indiana Jones movie I'd seen. And so for me, I didn't realize that it was not living up to potential. Right? Like, that's... Oh, shit. Um... Uh, yeah, I, I just didn't realize that at the time. And so I recently rewatched the movie. And lo and behold, it is terrible. And the problem is that it actually isn't a bad movie if there's no context for it. So if this is released as a completely different entity with a completely different IP without Harrison Ford in it, it probably is fine. And people don't hate it 
as much as they do. But when you use the Indiana Jones name and you cast Harrison Ford and you pretend that this movie takes place in the same universe that, as the, all the ones we've seen before, then it takes on a completely different meaning. And it loses an infinite amount of credibility and could have possibly destroyed the franchise immediately. Now, we are going to see another Indiana Jones movie soon, and hopefully they've learned their lesson. I don't know. We will see. But just the aliens, man. Like, why? Why did there have to be aliens? Like, what, what was the point? Why did we have to deviate so far from this, from what worked? You know, it, it doesn't make sense. You know, like I'm looking at some of the reviews from other people. This is from from James from Cinerealist. Half a star for existing, and that's the best I can say about it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> or uh, another person on uh, on Letterbox. Gripping drama about a demented, a dementing geriatric archaeologist who thinks he's having an adventure, while in reality he's being spoon-fed porridge. Man, uh, <laughs> uh, man, it's it's. Uh, no. <laughs> Here's a good one. I'm only gonna read the first paragraph of this. I debated long and hard whether I should rewatch Kingdom of the Crystal Skull during my Indiana Jones marathon, as it seemed wrong to end on such a soul-crushing sour note. However, having avoided watching it again since seeing it in the theater, I decided to give it one last try, and maybe with exceedingly low expectations I might even enjoy it. Unfortunately, no matter how lenient and kind I want to be, there is no way I could possibly enjoy this poorly conceived and belated sequel that only tarnishes the memory of the films that went before it. Like That is really well written. And kind of sums everything up completely. You know, you can make a lot of references to the fridge. And, and like the fridge sequence is pretty bad. But the whole film is really bad. <laughs> I, you know, I just, Kate Blanchett is in this movie. Why? She's so much better than this. It's so bad. Okay, it's just, it just is, all right? And so those are the films from Spielberg. That is my Spielberg retrospective. And now, according to Letterboxd, these are the films from Spielberg I haven't seen yet. So there's, Twilight Zone, the movie. I haven't watched the show, so I haven't seen the movie. Uh, 1941, The Sugarland Express, Something Evil, uh, and then Firelight, which has like no details on it at all. Um, Savage, which is reportedly a TV film length pilot of a show called Savage, but it's like listed as a movie, so like maybe that counts, maybe it doesn't. And then a television movie called Night Gallery. 
uh, which isn't really a Spielberg film so much as he directs one segment of like an anthology of three tales, which also is a pilot for a TV series. So I don't know if that one really counts either. So I have somewhere between four and seven Spielberg films left to see before I've completed his filmography. Um, and then there's um, four films that he's got in production. So Ready Player One is slated to come out in 2018, which I know is getting a lot of hype. I have not, I have no idea what it's about. I've never read the book. Uh, looking at some of the cast here, you've got Mark Rylance, Simon Pegg, TJ Miller, Ben Mendelsohn, Ty Sheridan, and Olivia Cook, who I love. I think she's great. Uh, you know, she was fantastic in Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. And she's okay in a we in Ouija. 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 But like that that film is bad. So I'm really looking I'm looking forward to Ready Player One. I think it could be pretty good. It's got a video game bend to it, so that's cool. Uh, there's Indiana Jones 5, which is slated to come out in 2019, which uh, will bring back Harrison Ford, will be directed by Spielberg. So, you know, cross your fingers that crapping doesn't strike twice. That was really bad, I'm sorry. Uh, next year, you've got The Kidnapping of Edgardo Mortara, starring Mike Rylance. <laughs> Um, which I have no idea what this is about. But uh, it looks very... It's got the story of a young Jewish boy who, having been secretly baptized, is forcibly taken from his family to be raised as Christian. That doesn't really sound like a movie that I'm going to be interested in. And then the last film does not have a year attached to it, uh, but it's the Untitled George Gershwin Project, um, which there's really nothing else known about it. But So those are the movies that I haven't seen, the ones that are coming out in the next year or two. Uh, and that's Spielberg. Like He's hit pretty much every genre. Uh, I believe the only thing he hasn't really done is like a musical or something like that. If I'm, I'm correct, yeah, I don't think he's done a musical. And, you know, he's just a really talented filmmaker. You know, you know, everybody, with a career as long as his, everyone's bound to have some missteps. And, you know, he is not immune to that as well. You know, there's... Uh, the only person that has... 15, uh, well, let's see. The only person that has 11 or more films that doesn't have any films rated below a 60 is Miyazaki, currently on my spreadsheet. And then the next person you would go down to is Tarantino, who's only got nine films. So he's got 28 films, only four of them hit below a 50. And, you know, he's got 
five films in the 90s, which is only beaten out by Linklater and Nolan. He's got seven films in the 80s, which is the highest total out of everybody. So he is very top-heavy and, you know, is is a filmmaker that has imprinted on so many lives and influenced so many kids, so many aspiring directors, so many aspiring filmmakers, uh, people just involved in film in general, that it's impossible to overlook him as having such a heavy influence on this medium. And so I really wanted to just kind of go through and take a look at all of his movies because there's a lot on that list that I haven't really thought about in a long time, to be honest. And it's nice to kind of just take another second to, to look at them again and remember them fondly because at this point in my movie watching career, I don't really take the time to rewatch things that often, if ever. You know, 90 to 95% of all the movies I watch now are ones I haven't seen before because that's more interesting. You know, I'd rather watch a bad movie I haven't seen than a good movie that I have seen at least nine, like 99 times out of 100 anyway. So, yeah, that's this has been my Steven Spielberg retrospective on his roughly entire filmography. Uh, we're barely going to scrape by under two hours on this one, and I wish it could have been a little shorter, actually. But... Hopefully you enjoyed this. Hopefully this brought back some memories for you when you first saw a lot of these movies. I don't think there's a person alive who hasn't seen at least one Spielberg film. I would be shocked to find someone who hasn't seen one Spielberg film that wasn't at least like 13, probably. And here's to, you know, 40 more movies from Spielberg. You know, I don't know if he's got them in him, if he's got the time in him, but if he keeps putting them out, I'm going to keep watching them because even the bad ones, like the BFG, it even, it, you know, I, I, there are parts about it I liked. He directs it well. Like, it's not like he's gotten worse at directing. It's more of the content and story that has kind of struggled to stay, to keep up with him. And, uh, yeah, so hopefully he can continue to put out good material on a regular basis. And I'm sure that most of the movies that he, that I mentioned, some of the movies I mentioned to come out will definitely be covered on future episodes. So thank you for listening. You can find any of my contact information on at circleoffilm.com and if you are the kind of person that likes to rate and review podcasts please do that at iTunes or Stitcher because I'd appreciate it and if that's the type of person you are you like doing it and with that with that I will say goodbye and have a week. So long, farewell, I'll be this
Wait a minute. Wait a minute.